Welcome to the American Council of Christian Churches podcast. Since 1941, Bible-believing churches holding the great fundamental truths of the Word of God as held by the historic Christian Church have worked through the ACCC to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Through this podcast, you'll hear general and breakout sessions from our conventions and meetings and the Council's official resolutions and publications. Today's podcast is a message given by Rev. David Mook at the ACCC's 2022 Annual Convention at Faith Chapel in Carlisle, Pennsylvania. David is a retired pastor in the Free Presbyterian Church of North America and served as president of the American Council of Christian Churches from 2016 to 2022. Rev. Mook's message was on the convention theme, Veritas Christo et Ecclesia, Truth for Christ and the Church. My great joy to add my welcome to that of our executive secretary to this 81st annual convention of the American Council of Christian Churches and so pleased to return here to Faith Chapel in Carlisle. Uh, this is the city where I was born uh, many years ago now and it's always nice to come back to Carlisle and remember God's faithfulness. And always nice to see the members of the, the American Council of Christian Churches and others who come to join in the sessions of this convention. We do thank Pastor Mayer and all of those who work with him here at Faith Chapel for their diligent preparations for our coming together in this week. And trust that the Lord will bless them richly for those efforts. Now we're going to turn our attention in God's Word this evening to the first epistle of Paul to Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 3. First Timothy chapter 3. I'm going to read just the last three verses of the chapter. Let us hear together the word of the Lord. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. 
It is the word of the living God, and may the Lord add his approval to the public reading of his infallible word for his name's sake. Let us bow briefly in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we rejoice in all that we have heard already this evening, the hearing of thy holy word, the singing of the people of God. We rejoice in these anthems of praise for the special music that we have heard. O Lord, now we come to the proclamation of thy truth and that thou hast set before us as we launch this convention in this year. We pray, Father, for the demonstration of thy power to be in evidence in this gathering. We pray that the Spirit of God, the true author of the Holy Scriptures, will empower their proclamation tonight so that the Word of God will reach every soul. Oh, hear us, we pray. Grant that thy Spirit may empower me for this sacred task of proclaiming the infallible book. So we wait upon thee. We pray that Christ will be exalted and that all glory may go unto him. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Let us take as our text verses 15 and 16. I'm departing a little bit from the published program by adding verse 16 to our text this evening. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. John 17:3, And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Proverbs 2 and 3. If your short-term memory is not too bad, you may recall hearing those words not too long ago. If you weren't paying attention when the resolution was read, you got to hear those words again. Now, some may think that those sentiments are part of a student handbook from any of the Christian colleges and universities living and dead with which you may have some acquaintance. 
But those statements, as you know, are from the founding documents of one of the oldest institutions of higher learning in America, Harvard College. Six years after the founding of the Massachusetts Bay Colony, the Puritan leaders of that endeavor established Harvard College for the primary purpose of training young men in the colony to be ministers of the gospel. It was not practical to send them to England for training. The expectations for the behavior of the students of the college reflected the application of the scriptures to their lives. The Puritans did not regard such an application as revolutionary in their time. I don't think that many people would regard it as normal in this time. But they said that they, eschewing all profanation of God's name, attributes, word, ordinances, and times of worship, do study with good conscience carefully to retain God and the love of his truth in their minds. Else let them know that notwithstanding their learning, God may give them up to strong delusions, and in the end to a reprobate mind. 2 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, and Romans 1, 28. That they studiously redeem the time, Observe the general hours appointed for all the students and the special hours for their own classes. And then diligently attend the lectures without any disturbance by word or gesture. None shall under any pretense whatsoever frequent the company and society of such men as lead an unfit and dissolute life. So, what happened? What happened? Without taking any thunder from some of our breakout sessions in this convention, I can answer that question in this way. The leaders and students of the college, not sure which went first, became weary of the spiritual discipline the founders prescribed and wished instead for an easier and more popular path to the ministry. Sadly, those parents and community leaders who supported the college gradually adopted a similar view. So it came to pass that by the early 19th century, the president of Harvard College was a Unitarian. The apostasy from the truth and the feckless compromises with that departure first subverted and then destroyed the vision of the founders of the college. This tale, as sad and shocking as it is, has many persistent echoes 
in church history, and especially in the compromising climate in which we proclaim the gospel now in the third decade of the 21st century. In his inspired pastoral epistles, the Apostle Paul warned his young protege Timothy about the dangers of surrendering the truth that is the inscripturated word and the incarnate word. As the gospel spread across the world during the first century, the opposition to it became more intense and more ominous. There was no ebbing of the persecution against those who followed the way of Christ. But also there began to arise within the Christian community those who under the guise of being Christian teachers began to subvert the truths that lay at the bottom of Christianity to use an expression that the founders of Harvard College used. Paul spoke of heretics like Janes and Jambres who resisted the truth. The second generation of Christian leaders, including Timothy and Titus and others, faced a battle for orthodox doctrine. The heresies that arose were the result of accommodating the gospel to the various pagan philosophies that swirled around the first century world. It was a quest for relevance. Let's not be too hard. Those attacks focused on the authority of Holy Scripture and principally on the person of Jesus Christ. To deny those foundational truths was to argue for the message of salvation by human merit. The heretics taught that if you do the best you can, if you are sincere in whatever religion you follow, then you will be all right before God. Whatever his name is. It was the message that Paul urged Timothy to resist with determination. In our text, which is the keynote for this convention, Paul indicated that the church exists in the world for a specific reason. And that applies whether it's an individual local church or a part of a denomination. The reason for its existence is to stand in defense of the truth of which we read in the last verse of this chapter. Paul's assertion then is true in a congregational setting. It is true in a denominational setting. Whichever style of church polity you believe and practice, the text conveys the command that the church must be the pillar and ground of the truth. That truth is what the heretics and the apostates and those who compromise with them seek to subvert. 
And they have been about that devilish work since the day of Christ's ascension. Don't let anybody convince you that somehow in the first century things were better. They were not. Paul's reminder to Timothy and to every other follower of Jesus Christ is that the church has a purpose to pursue and a gospel to preach. The church cannot pretend that its message is negotiable in the effort to gain accommodation or popularity or relevance or a version of unity that is only an illusion. When Jesus Christ prayed for the unity of his people, he did not pray that the truth concerning him should become optional. Here, the inspired apostle told his younger colleague that the church exists in the world to contend against every effort to deny the truth of the gospel. When the Pope denies the plain statements of the scriptures, which every pope does, to argue for a religion of merit, then the church that is the pillar and ground of the truth must identify and condemn such departures. When we assemble in the church, we take our stand for the message of the truth. In this convention, which marks the 81st anniversary of the founding of the American Council of Christian Churches, we take as our theme, truth for Christ and the church. The church is in the world to speak the truth and to speak for the truth. That is, it's not only a matter of what it proclaims, it's a matter of its willingness to be in defense. And that reality leads to controversy. It leads to battles. Many people don't like it. But there is in these verses of Scripture that we consider this evening a very encouraging thought. Those who wage their battles for the truth do so under the direction and protection of the living God. Every Christian church is, as Paul put it, the church of the living God. Those who are in the church are called to battle for what the living God has revealed. This defense of the truth demands the assertion of positions that the ungodly find abhorrent. It's so narrow-minded. It's so bigoted. In many states and countries right now, there is a battle over whether churches should have the liberty to assert the truth that there are only two genders and that marriage is to be only between one man and one woman. The leaders of the world including those at the head of the United States government, appear to believe that taking such positions is harmful to the people of society. The first century world teemed with such perversions. 
So Paul urged Timothy to be constant in taking his stand in defense of the truth. As Paul advised Timothy concerning the church, he underlined several inescapable truths that we do well to consider this evening. First of all, God's presence. God's presence. Paul wrote that the church is the house of God. That's an Old Testament concept. The word Bethel in the Old Testament, that's literally uh, the house of God. Although having that as a designation, as you can know by studying the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, is no guarantee of orthodoxy because they had Bethel in the north. It was the location of apostate religion. Paul was speaking of the church of the living God. What is this house? Well, let us turn a few pages over to Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3, and verse 6. But Christ, as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. Christ is over his house. Those who believe in Jesus Christ, those whom the Holy Spirit has regenerated, those whom Christ has redeemed by his precious blood, are the dwelling place of the living God. I like to emphasize it because Many people, even Christian people, tend to confuse the church building with the church. The church building is a place where the church gathers. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And look at verse 16. Know ye not that ye, Paul speaking to the Corinthian believers, that ye, plural, are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. The glory of the church, then, is that it is the place where God dwells. Would that there would be a revival of this truth. The church is not a place for amusement. It is not a place for ignoring or defying the truth that God has revealed. In the house of God appears the power and glory of God. Let us look at a reference in the Old Testament in the 63rd Psalm. Psalm 63 and verse 2. 
David's desire when he was in the wilderness of Judah was to get back to the place where the house of God was. And he wanted, in verse 2, to see thy power and thy glory, so as I have seen thee in the sanctuary. There's the place where God's glory is manifest. When we have the privilege of looking upon those whom the blood of Christ has purchased, we see the evidence of the power and glory of God. There's no way for us to add anything to the glory of God. I've often said we speak about glorifying God. There's no way for us to add more glory to God than He has. But we can and must declare that glory. The church cannot conduct its mission in the world unless it lives in the light of the reality that the living God is present in the church. So let every church that finds representation in this council conduct its mission with the knowledge that God is present in the fullness of his glory. But let us move on, secondly, to consider God's power. And we come now to the language in our text that has caused some debates among commentators. Generally, if you, if you come to a difficult text and you want to know what it means, you can go through commentators and you can find just about every view that you can imagine. Paul said here in our text that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Now the Roman Catholic commentators have a field day here because they say, well, there it is. The text means that the truth rests on the church. So they define the church in Roman Catholic terms. But the Bible is plain that the truth exists independently of any association with any person or any organization. It's not a popular concept in these days, I know, but it is right. The church, then, is not the foundation of the truth. The church is the structure that the living God has established in this world to act in defense of the truth. And that defense requires militancy and resolve. And oh, how the world hates those concepts. For such a defense exists only in the power of the living God. The power to resist what opposes the truth. Power to stand against every defection from orthodoxy whether that defection is a dilution of the truth about God or a denial of the infallibility of Scripture. And I, I love that concept of infallibility of Scripture. Yes, we believe in inerrancy. We believe in inspiration. But we also believe in infallibility. That is, there is authority attaching to that which God has revealed. We stand against any 
suggestion that the blood atonement is not necessary or that Christ did not rise bodily from the dead. It's only by the power of the living God that you can resist the opposition to the truth. But there's another aspect related to defending the truth, and that is God's proclamation. We read here about the pillar. It was the custom in the Old Testament period that the worshipers of the true God set up pillars, pillars of stone, whatever they found, as monuments to proclaim some facet of God's dealings with his people. Let us turn back to Genesis uh, chapter 28. Genesis chapter 28. And here the context deals with Jacob. Jacob and his journey and we read in Genesis 28 and verse 22, This stone, which I have set for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of all that thou shalt give me, I will surely give the tenth unto thee. So here he set up a pillar that was to be a reminder to him and to anyone else who encountered it, as to what God had done there. There he had seen that ladder set up on the earth, the top of which reached unto heaven. So there Jacob took his stand. He said whatever his experience had been in the past, Jacob took his stand that here was what God had revealed to him. He was proclaiming the goodness of God, dealing with Jacob in grace and in mercy when he deserved nothing but condemnation. To say that the church then is the pillar and ground of the truth as we find in our text is to proclaim the gospel of that grace to sinners. It's the only hope that sinners have. It's the only hope that we have. The church's message then is the word of God and the doctrine of Christ. For the church to be the pillar and ground of the truth means that there's no liberty to deviate from that truth or to distort that truth or to conceal that truth in any way. Now when it comes to what we possess in material goods, we may be liberal, and the scripture certainly commends such liberality, but when we come to the truth of the living God, there is no such liberty. The church has only that message, the message of divine grace, and has to proclaim it unswervingly whether people want to hear it or not. And there are many that don't want to hear it. it. It doesn't amuse them. It doesn't entertain them. They're looking for something 
a little more pleasing, a little softer. The church's proclamation, though, is that it will not sell out the truth for any reason. And that it will do all that is possible to transmit that truth safely and without corruption to succeeding generations. And on the Lord's Day, I was preaching in our church in Malvern, Pennsylvania, to the east of here. Dr. Pollock will be here tomorrow, the pastor of that church. And uh, I was speaking to one of the young mothers in the congregation there, and she had two or three of her children gathered around her. And the, the thought struck me again, as it often does, 21st century people. 21st century people. The succeeding generations. And I could remember many more years ago than I care to re remember right now, but I can remember sitting in church. I can remember a preacher in the pulpit. I couldn't tell you the first thing he said. But I can remember being there. And I can remember that my parents reinforced what the preacher said. It was the truth. The church that casts away the truth loses its reason to be. The institution that dilutes its declaration to adhere to foundational principles dooms its existence. The church then, Paul said, is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. So when people come into the church, they are struck by the fact that here is a body of people who are taking their stand and will not let it go. The church is to be the instrument of God for propagating and conserving the truth of the gospel in a world bent on destroying that truth. And let us be honest with each other. There are many times when we become discouraged and dismayed because we know what the truth is. And other people seem to be determined to reject it or to destroy it. But the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Thinking again of Harvard College, the changes there didn't happen overnight. They were not dramatic. But one president thought we could be a little softer in our language, a little more tolerant maybe, and that led on to other departures and eventually you couldn't recognize what had been established. The church has to be steadfast against all forms of heresy. It has to be ardent in its dissemination of the gospel. It has to be unyielding in its love for the glorious person who is the very embodiment of that truth. What was it that Jesus Christ said? I am the way, the truth, and the life. We're speaking of truth for Christ and the church. What was truth for Christ? 
It was that which God has revealed. It was that which was consistent with Christ's holy and eternal person. And that person is the one whom Paul has in view in the last verse of the chapter. And that is the fourth thing that we find, God's personal revelation. We rejoice in the scriptures of truth, but we are thankful that they are one side of the coin. And the other side, inseparable from the scriptures, is the person of the incarnate God. In this last verse of the chapter, we look at the declarative statements that we encounter in this text. God was manifest in the flesh. This text speaks about the Lord Jesus Christ. It demands fidelity to the truth that concerns Him. Jesus declared, as we just noted, that He is the way, the truth, and the life. When Pilate stood face to face with Jesus of Nazareth, And Jesus said, everyone who is of the truth heareth my voice. Pilate's response was, what is truth? We are here tonight proclaiming the answer to that question. Christ, the truth that is Christ is the truth for the church. And the church has to defend the truth, especially from those who compromise it. We can take out after those who are over the edge in apostasy, but a lot of times we back off when we have to confront those who have compromised the truth in favor of the apostasy. You hear the Obituaries when a prominent person dies. Those who are left behind tend to talk about that person's prominence, his activities or her activities in the world. But the real question they should be asking is what did that person believe about Christ? At the point of death, that question is all that matters. Here is the truth about Christ. He was God manifest in the flesh. If you don't believe in the virgin birth, you don't believe the Bible. You're not a Christian. That's all there is to it. God appeared in human form in Jesus Christ. And as a man, Jesus knew the endorsement of the Holy Spirit who descended out of heaven. And the voice of God saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Angels ministered to him. And his apostles proclaimed the truth concerning him across the world. In fact, that's how we came ultimately to be here. Because the apostles proclaimed that truth. And people by the thousands the millions, the tens of millions, the hundreds of millions, the billions throughout history 
believed on him. And he is now at the right hand of God. He was received up into glory. So when we defend the truth, we defend the truth concerning him. The lessons of Harvard College are part of the historical record. And it's a sad record. Especially that those changes happened so gradually that there were many who were not even aware of them. But they happened inexorably. That is, once that process began, there were... There was one or maybe more uh, two presidents who tried to reverse the course after it was well established, and the students ran them out. Those who make or favor the changes believe, and they always do, that it is possible to limit the extent of the changes. I witnessed a church going down this road in my early years in Arizona. And I listened to the protestations of those who were taking it down that road that they were able to control it, that they, they could go so far and no farther. And I said, well, history doesn't shine too kindly on that idea. But changes that feature a shift from the truth in its classic sense to that which the people desire. And that's what it's all about here. What, what do the people want? Those who do so unleash their own momentum. And the changes gather speed. In the case of Harvard College, the process of tolerance for and promotion of change undermined upright behavior and the theology that underlies upright behavior. To embrace apostasy, or at least not to fight against it, is to destroy morality. So when you see what you see around you, what you find is a tribute to the power of apostate religion. And ultimately, that destruction leaves Christian faith in the dust. And that is why, in so many churches, those who grow up in the churches don't stick around. It isn't that the power of the gospel has been destroyed. It's that there seems to be no value to it. So let the commitment of this council always be to the truth that is Christ and the truth that God has revealed in and through the Holy Scriptures. Truth for Christ and the church. Let every church resolve that it will be the pillar and ground of the truth. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we give thee praise for thy faithful mercies.
to this council. When we reflect on all the years that have gone and those who have served thee faithfully in the council, who are now in thy presence, we feel the responsibility fallen upon us to contend for the same truth, to oppose every departure from it, and to proclaim the glory of the person of thine only begotten Son. So, Lord, we pray, use this convention to settle our minds and our resolve concerning this truth, concerning this calling that was given to this council to defend the truth. O oh Lord, we pray that Thou wilt indeed move among young people and grant to them that understanding of what has been given to them. O oh, hear our cry, we pray. Stamp Thy word upon our hearts tonight. And grant that there will be fruit for the preaching of that word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.